extend Christian greetings to each one. Really been encouraged with the young people that shared their testimonies and my prayer would be that you as a congregation would really surround them with your prayers and your support and encouragement. Oh, it's so nice to see young hearts planted and but it's a process and it's a working and there's an enemy and praise God. I think if if we all stay in the Word and we pray for one another and we encourage one another, we get close to each other and keep really honest and open. And uh, I think God can do some wonderful things in our lives. So God bless you, young folks, as you make that step. It's one of the, it is the most important step that you could make. In turning your Bibles to Second Peter, Second Peter in chapter one. My message today is very, very exciting and yet very sobering. God has laid a message on my heart and I trust He will help me to share it. Second Peter chapter one, as we read this chapter, I'd like you you to notice the the progression of verses 1 to 11, we have the Jesus Christ and it was offered to for our salvation. We have all the things that any Christian could ever need to live the Christian life given here. We also have the process of sanctification that goes on through our lives. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful um, collection of an overview of the Christian life. And I'd like to just read that, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have attained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as this divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience. To patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. For these things be in you and abound. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's something in these verses that sticks out, and that is in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. That is the exciting thing. That we can actually be a partaker of the divine nature. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We've got something to live for, folks. And, it says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The sobering thing, and the burden of my message today, is that I've seen folks who have come out of Babylon, out of the world. They have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. They have given up that whole world out there. They have taken those great and precious promises. They have become the partakers of the divine nature. And then their children go right back into the same ditch. This week I was preaching, earlier this week I was preaching at a, uh, some tent meetings. And uh, after the one night, this gentleman came to me. I know him for quite a few years. And I knew his, I, I knew a little bit about his story. Uh, they were, they were from the world. They were non-church. They didn't hear the gospel growing up. And one day, him and his wife heard the gospel and they got saved. 
And I tell you, they got saved in the divine nature. You could see it, the way they lived their life. But he comes to me. He says, would you please pray for my sons? He said, three of my sons, all three of my sons, they want nothing to do with Christianity. He said, my oldest son is now living with his girlfriend in the city. Exactly where we came from. They went back to it again. It says here that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The wedding yesterday, there was a gentleman there who lives in our community. And uh, I had heard by way of the grapevine that him and his wife are not together anymore. And so I come alongside him. I talk to him a little bit, chat a little bit. I said, sir, I, I understand your situation. I've heard a little bit about it started crying. He says, oh, if only I couldn't change it. If only I couldn't change it. I mean, his wife grew up in a conservative uh, brethren church. He grew up in a, probably at that time, a conservative brethren church. Here they are today. His wife left him, divorced him. He said, how can it be that they can, they can uh, get a divorce after two years without the other partner signing it? He said, if only I could go back and change things. And so here you have two people that grew up in fairly conservative setting, all the teachings against divorce and remarriage. Here they are. He's living by himself. She's running with another man. And their children look like harlots. And I say, must it happen? Isn't there some way to propagate the gospel and pass it on? Do we have to go in this circle. Folks that take on the divine nature, they escape the corruption, and then the following generations go right back again. One or some times if maybe we're not making the gospel look so attractive. Must they go back to the pig pen? I had read this poem to the family just the other morning. And I'm going to read it to you all because there's two things I want you to notice. We're talking about going back to the pig pen. Where we've been delivered from. And I'm not sure what's attracting. What is attracting people back to the pig pen? There's nothing there. But we watch it time after time. Young people choose to just go back into that pig pen. Well, I'm never going to go there. And that's where they end up. And you probably know, and I know some, who were raised in a godly setting. And they went out, and today they're living like harlots. This shouldn't happen. It should never happen. But this here poem goes like this. The room was so cold. Okay, two things I want you to notice. is Number one, I wanted you to notice. We get a little indication of this lady's prior life. Just a little bit of window into it. And the other thing I want you to notice is that the main character that this is about, just, just watch how he got sucked into the pig pen. The room was so cold, so cheerless and bare, with its rickety table and one broken chair, with its curtainless window, with hardly a pane, to keep out the snow, the wind, and the rain. A cradle stood empty, pushed up to the wall, and somehow that seemed just the saddest of all. In the rusty old stove, the fire was dead, there was snow on the floor at the foot of the bed. And there all alone, a pale woman was lying. You need not look twice to see she was dying, dying for want of hunger and cold. Shall I? Tell you the story, the story she told. Now she's going to say this story to another woman. No, ma'am, I'm no better. My cough is so bad, it's wearing me out through, and that makes me glad, for tis wearisome living when one's all alone. And heaven, they tell me, it's just like a home. Yes, ma'am, I've a husband. He's somewhere about. I hoped he'd come in before the fire went out, but I guess he's gone where he's likely to stay. I mean, to the drinking house over the way. It was not always so, and I hope you won't think too hard of him, lady. It's only the drink. I know he's kind-hearted, for oh, how he cried for the poor little baby. 
the morning it died. You see, he took sudden, grew very bad. We had no doctor, my poor little lad. For his father was gone, never meaning to stay, I'm sure, to the drinking house over the way. And when he came back, it was far in the night. I was so tired and sick with fright of staying so long with my baby alone. And it was cutting my heart with its pitiful moan. He was cross with his drink, poor fellow, I know. I was that, not the baby, that bothered him so. But he swore at the child as pending it lay and went back to the drinking house over the way. I heard the gate slam, my heart seemed to freeze like ice in my bosom there on my knees. By the side of the cradle, all shivering I stayed. I wanted my mother. I cried and I prayed. The clock had stuck, struck two ere my baby was still, and my thoughts went back to my home on the hill, where my happy girlhood had spent its short day far, far from the drinking house over the way. Could I be that girl? I, that heartbroken wife, there watching alone while that dear little life was going so fast that I had to bend low to hear it if it breathed was so faint and so slow. Yes, it was easy. His dying, he just grew more white. His eyes opened wider to look at the light. As his father came in, was just break of day, came in from the drinking house over the way. Yes, ma'am, he was sober, at least mostly, I think. He often stayed that way to wear off his drink. And I know he was sorry for what he had done, for he set a great store by our first little one. And straight did he come to the cradle bed where our baby lay dead, so pretty and fair. I wondered that I could have wished him to stay when there was a drinking house over the way. He stood quite a while, did not understand. You see, till he touched old little hand. Oh, then came the tears, and he shook like a leaf. And he said, "'Twas the drinking that made all the grief.'" The neighbors were kind. The minister came. He talked of seeing my baby again. And of the bright angels, I wondered if they could see in that drinking house over the way. I thought when my baby was put in the ground and the men with their shovels were shaping the mound, if somebody only would help me to save my husband who stood by my side at the grave. If only it were not so handy to drink, the men that makes laws, ma'am, sure didn't think. Of the hearts they break, of the souls they would slay when they licensed that drinking house over the way. I've been sick ever since, and it cannot be long, be pitiful lady, to him when I'm gone. He wants to do right, but you can never think how weak a man grows when he's fond of his drink. It's tempting to him here, it's tempting. Tempting him there for places I've counted on this very square where a man could get whiskey by night and by day, not a mention, not a mention, the drinking house over the way. There's a verse in the Bible the minister read, no drunkard shall enter the kingdom, it said, and he is my husband. I love him so, and where I am going, I want him to go. Our baby and I will both want him there. Don't you think the dear Savior will answer your prayer? And please, when I'm gone, ask someone to pray for him at the drinking house over the way. The thing that was so heartbreaking about this whole thing is that one uh, one or two uh, paragraphs, the clock had struck two ere my baby was still. My thoughts went back to my home on the hill where my happy girlhood had spent its short day far, far from the drinking house over the way. Could I be that girl? I, that heartbroken wife, They're watching alone while that dear little life doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be that way. The other thing is, there's no doubt about it, he was probably a kind, gentle man. And yet the thing I find hard to believe is that there are those who grew up and have been taught all the right things. And they're flirting with those kind of things. It's just unimaginable. One family... Grew up in our circles. The young man was rebellious. They kicked him out of the home. I say kicked him out of the home. Gave him a decision. You're going to live for God. You're going to honor and respect the authority of the home. If not, you're going to have to go elsewhere. He got into it all. Heroin. Everything. His parents are weeping today. He comes back ruined and broken and wrecked. I'm not sure why we even flirt with those kind of things. I'd like to take you over now to First Peter. 
First Peter chapter 3, just reading a couple verses. My title today is Propagating the Faith. At the end here, we want to give just three different specific things that God has laid on my heart that maybe can help us as we think of passing on the faith. Oh, First Peter and chapter 3, reading, reading 13 to 17. It says, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But if, and if you suffer for righteousness, excuse me, but, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In this uh, verse 13, it says, normally, the way it works, if you do the right thing, there's going to be people there to bless you. They're going to be there to encourage you. That's what the government's all about. They're supposed to punish evil doer and praise the good. Now, we all know that that doesn't always happen that way. And just as much as normally when we do what is right, there should be people there to encourage us and bless us. That ain't going to always happen. Sometimes we're going to suffer for doing the right thing. So, yes, this is the way it's supposed to work, but it's not going to always work that way. Sometimes we're going to suffer for doing the right thing. It says, we're supposed to be happy. And just don't even be afraid. Just don't be scared of their terror. And, uh, yeah, don't be afraid of their terror. But there's something we need to do. By suffering for when, for what is right. When we suffer for doing right. It gives an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity for us to share the hope that we have in our hearts. Now, this hope that it says here uh, could be referring to, when we get over on the other side, heaven and all of that. But I think just as much if we have hope in this life only, we're of men most miserable. If we only have hope for the future, I think we're of all men most miserable too. Because we got a hope right here. We got something to live for, my friends. We have a hope. And so people are going to look at you, they're going to see you suffering, and they're going to say, you know, there's something different about you. And it will give us an opportunity to share the good things of God, to share that hope that we have. Now it does say, and it's a good warning, that we're supposed to do it with meekness and fear. That puts our heart in a good place. We're not proud, we're not arrogant. When we say it, we're saying it in such a way that they can sense that we love them, we care about them. We're doing it in meekness and fear. It's really important, folks, that we live with a clear conscience. It's really important. So that as we share that hope with these people, that we can do it with a clear conscience and that uh, even though there's a lot of people say bad things, down underneath, if they never admit it, they will say there's something different about that person. Well, we have a hope to share. And that is the exciting thing, and it's important that we do it with meekness, and that we do it with fear. That is a healthy kind of fear. There is no other religion where we have the opportunity to simply clear up our past. That we can live with the reality that our sins are forgiven, and we can look at the opportunity of standing before the great white judgment throne. And stand with confidence. That's totally amazing. That we can actually find the forgiveness of sin. That's the hope. That's one of the hopes that we have in this life. And I think uh, Jesus would have said this to Paul. And he said that uh, he's going to send Paul. And one of the things Paul's going to preach. And this is the gospel message to open their eyes. To turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's what I want. That's not only what I want for myself, but I want that for my children and for their children and for their children. 
that they can receive the forgiveness of sins. They can have an inheritance among those that are sanctified by faith. Well, that's not the only thing. Sometimes some of us come with a lot of baggage. And I'm sure even if you were well-trained and disciplined and you're 15 years old, you still have a little bit of baggage um, habits that need to be taken care of. But you know what? It is such a wonderful thing. It's another hope that we have that most of the world don't know about. It's this hope that we can share with the world. And that is that we have the opportunity to actually have a renewed mind. God can take our mind and renew it and make it new again. And those old thinking patterns of negative thinking patterns and and uh, they can be renewed and we can have good, clean thinking patterns and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, why would anyone want to go out when we have such opportunity like this and just throw their life into the garbage can? This is an opportunity of a lifetime to have our sins forgiven, to be a part of, of the people of God and be sanctified and have our minds renewed. That's exciting. And not only that, God can really heal relationships. You know, we don't have to live together and fight and argue and hate one another and jealousy and all of those things. It is a gospel that touches every area of our life. And it does in this area too. In Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, we were disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. We were living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But it goes on to say, when the love of God came in, how it changed our lives. So much of the world, they're fighting, they're arguing, there's hatred, anger, relationships are marked by verbal abuse and even physical abuse. But the world needs to know what it can be like. And they do stand in awe of a home that is marked by love, care, kindness, and appreciation. Silent cry of our society is begging for an atmosphere that is heavenly. And you and I actually have found it. And you know, we have the answer. And when I say that, that's not boastful. But those who know the gospel, we have the answer. And so relationships can also be different and change. We don't have to live like that. Ephesians 4 says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, evil speaking, put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That is so beautiful. The world is longing for it. Just had a gentleman drive into our home here the other week. He's a man with just one leg. I think it was taken off in the war. And... uh he comes, and so we, with our sails, we try to run out there and serve him, because that way he doesn't have to put on his leg and get out of the car, so we get there to serve him. He just said, I just love coming in here. There's something about this place. He said, if everybody would love like you people do, there wouldn't be war anymore. And he said, living with a short leg would really be nothing. They see it. They see it. We've got a hope. And are we giving that message? I was, I don't know, I just want to cry, Brother Dave, the other week when you sent that letter and was read there in Harmony and how the neighbor man beat his wife. I mean, that's just so horrible. Those things should never happen. There's something within me that makes me angry that a man would ever treat a woman like that. Afterwards, I was said something to Brother Rick. I said to him, I said, I can't believe it. I just can't believe that those kind of things will keep on going on in this world. How can a man treat his wife like that? Rick said, you know what? You don't have to go very far. We even have it around here. Well, yeah, I realize that. We do. He said just the week before, just that week, they went up to Pottsville. and Some of you Pottsville fellows probably know about it. And they went into this home to do a Bible study. And I, I don't know if I got the story all straight, but the, I think the man and lady who they do the Bible story with are the, the man they do the the uh, Bible study with, he lives with another man and woman with some children. And he got in there just after they had a big brawl and a fight. And they were beating up on each other. And finally, the, uh, the mom and dad, they left. And so Rick walks in there and some of the others. And children are all messed up and crying and upset about the whole thing. And hey, parents just left. 
I don't understand when we have such a hope, so much to live for, that there would be some of those who would just throw that away and go out and live in the pig pen again. I don't understand. How can it be? I'm going to also read another story I just came across. The pig pen. So sad. This here was a was in the Evangelist of Truth magazine. It was an article in August 2013. But it goes like this. Please, please don't sign them. Oh, Daddy, don't sign those papers. My pleading must have added greatly to my father's burden, but the pen held firmly in his hand continued to write his name on the final papers. Thus was my world destroyed, and I with it. For on that day something died in the heart of a child. A child? In years, yes, but the child pleading in the divorce court that day would never again be a carefree little girl. For now, my mommy and daddy were divorced. It was a big world, a hateful one. What it meant to grown-ups, I did not know, but what it meant to me is a story that could never be fully told. Right now, right now, it meant that the home we had known existed no longer to us children. Our home was our world, both mom and daddy, central parts of it. But that has suddenly crumbled like a violent storm that strikes suddenly and leaves you to pick up the pieces. So life has suddenly turned our home inside out and upside down. Much of the shock lay in the fact that the ones destroying it had been our very security in life. From now on, my family must be divided. I was to choose between my mother and father. I could not have both. Though I loved and wanted them, both of them, to love me. Each was necessary to me. How could I turn my back on one and say I wanted the other more? Listen to the relationship here. I remember nights when I was sick, how my mother kept vigil, how she had fed me, tended to my needs. Surely she loved me. When things troubled me, I had always gone to her and her explanation that banished childish fears. I had great faith in my mother. Nor could I doubt my father's love or the close place I had in his heart. Often my brothers sent me to dad when they wanted some favor, knowing he seldom refused me. This special place I had with Daddy was perhaps because I was so like him. We understood each other so well. I had deep respect for my father, but how could I compare it with what I felt for mother? How could I make a decision that would separate me from either? This was the down payment in the price of divorce, and the children had to pay. To any parents who still count the cost, I plead the cause of your children. If you subject them to the agony of choosing between the parents he loves, something wonderful has to die in his heart during the unnatural struggle that choice entails. Years have passed, but I still shudder at the memory of the day I left our home with my mother. Daddy cried like a child when, and then just stood and stared into space. I wondered what went through his mind then. He had worked so hard to do the right by his family. Now all he had built was gone. Was part of his grief due to the fact that missing from the circle of his motherless children was his only daughter? Was he thinking of what might have been? In my mind, there's no doubt of what might have been. Theirs could have been a successful marriage had they determined to keep the home intact. Had both or even one of them been able to sacrifice personal feelings. As far back as my memory goes, I remember parents quarreling. Like all quarrels, these were born of selfishness, stubbornness, with neither willing to give in to the other. Foolish advice was, separate if you can't get along, it will be better for the children. Better to crush six young hearts than for one or two to bear small hurts. Better the blow should fall on six lives, young and tender, not old enough to know why they must be separated from one another. Bitter protests and tears were vain for divorce courts do not consider human hearts when they collect their dues. Mother and dad were to be free, but we children were not. I became a slave to despair. The quarrels? They ceased, to be sure, but the cries of heartbroken children took their place. And I, for one, longed to hear those quarrels, if only it meant I could have my mother and daddy back. This story is my own. The plea I make is that of my own heart, though my brothers, too, could write their own stories and neighbors in our small town could add to it. Perhaps it's just a familiar story. A daddy too busy to do the little things that count so much and having to neglect his six- and eight-year-old boys. My little brother longed for his mother, but he compensated for his loss and grief by acts of meanness, so he became a problem child at school. My teenage brothers became involved with the law to the point where they spend a night in jail. I realized even then that, that this, too, is a part of the price of divorce that the children pay. There's more to the reading, but I'm not going to read it. Just a couple of months ago, I was subpoenaed 
to be at court to testify for a father who was battling in court over who gets the children. And there's some of you in here that wouldn't know them. It's so sad. The grown children came in to testify against their mother dressed like harlots. doesn't have to be that way. But I'm not altogether sure if I understand why we even flirt around with that out there. It's not a pretty world. Well, there's so many good things that we have. We have taken a drink from the spiritual well that satisfied the soul. As Jesus said to the woman, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knowest the gift of God, who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him. He would have given thee living water. It is so sad that so many are drinking from fountains that never quench the thirst. But again, we have the answer. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. When we, when we taste of the living water, everything else looks so vain. Just, just driving down the road and seeing that fella with his big pickup. He's got the diesel engine, he's got the smoke stacks up and you hear him take off and he puts a pedal to the metal and the smoke pours out and I'm sure he's feeling like, that's so vain. It is so vain. When we drink, when we've had a drink of the living water, I feel bad. I feel sorry for them. There's somehow, there's a little bit of excitement there that only lasts a short time. And yet, some of us are flirting with the same stuff. When we get to drink from the living fountains of waters. Well, Solomon's testimony gives the answer, for God giveth to man that is good in his sight. He gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. That is exciting. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather, to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Another thing that we really have going for us, because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have the privilege of raising our children with convictions. We have the privilege of raising with convictions that, hey, Their bodies are the temple of God and so they clothe them properly, they protect them, they watch over them and they keep their virginity until that that time they stand at the marriage altar. We have such a privilege when, oh, so many of the world, they're out there destroying themselves and when they get the marriage, they have nothing to give and it doesn't even last. And yet, some of us who may have left all of that or some of us who made some choices, the next generation is going out and flirting with that thing. Can't imagine. We have the answer. We don't walk after the fashion, don't the fashions, we don't clothe ourselves in a way to draw attention because we, we have purpose in what we're doing. We don't flirt with the opposite gender. We believe in our courtships that there's no touching, there's no holding hands. That we we are really mean business by this thing because we know how easy it can be destroyed. And yet, even our courtships, they're flirting with this thing. They do. They sit against each other. Well, maybe they wouldn't hold hands, but why do we even flirt with it? We've got the answer. We have the answer, my friend. Well, it is possible to propagate the faith. Actually, we can propagate it two ways. One for good, one for bad. Deuteronomy 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them. That's talking about uh, false gods. Nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And that is really sad and serious. That this thing passes on down through. One person does it. They love it. And they're, they are, they're hating God by doing it. And then the next generation, they love it. And they hate God by it. And, the next, and this just thing keeps on going. And then somebody finally breaks it. It says, in showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And we've seen it. People who have the long history of, of ungodliness. And one day they get born again, truly set free. They pull out of the world. 
and then their children go back and walk in the same mire. It's almost more than I can handle and take. So, three things that I want to challenge. First of all, myself, and then hopefully all of you. How will we pass on the faith that was once delivered to the saints? Since we have the answers, what is happening? Uh, I really appreciated Douglas's short devotional. And he talked about being faithful to the end. And he mentioned about these folks that we know, whole families, who have stepped out of the world and made a clear cut. And then they turned around and went right back in. The whole family has went back into it again. It's just almost unbelievable that those things would happen. So what are some things we can do that might help that those things don't happen? Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about. I'm going to talk about three of them. The first one I think that may be a little bit of a difficulty for us is, is uh, clear conversions. I have no idea that there are going to be those that are going to be sharing their testimony today. I'm not very in touch of what's going on here. And so it's, it's definitely no reflection. I trust that those who've been born again, you're born again. You've got your sights set on Jesus Christ. There's no turning back. You've tr- truly repented of your sin. And everybody who knows you say there's something different about them. That's the way it ought to be, because in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we see it by the testimony of many others. The restless demoniac in Mark 5, it says, And always, night and day, he was in the mountain, in the tombs, crying, cutting himself with stones. But the man became a quiet disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he met the Lord Jesus, it says, Matthew 5, or Mark 5, 15, and they, came, they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. They're like, what is this? Here's this man that used to be living that way and now look at him. And so it's the gospel and it changes. And we have to be careful that we don't dumb down the gospel. John, he was the vindictive disciple in Luke chapter 9, it says, And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he became the apostle of love. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. You see the transformation here. It's something we need to really hold on to. We want more than just... Putting, uh, accepting God into our life or adding God to our life. We want some real, radical, ref, uh, not reformation, but transformation. Oh, we have the cold heart of Philippian jailer in Acts 16.24, who having received such a charge, thrust him into the inner prison, made their feet fast in the stocks. But the man, when he met Jesus, became a sympathetic friend. Just a few verses later, it says, And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all, his, and all of his straight way. And so the need to have uh, conversions that actually change a person's life. Now, if, you, if you've been raised in a godly home and been taught a lot of disciplines, it's definitely not going to be as obvious. But I think it still is going to be obvious that something has changed. Maybe it's just a glow on the face. Maybe it's just that you're easy to get along with. You know, all of those things. We know how those things go. But we're going to need to look for transformation, not just reformation. There's a story about the Great North Road. And out in India, this man said he traveled on the Great North Road that runs up through, I don't know how to say, Punjab and the United Provinces. One side of the road was soft earth for the camels. The other side was macadam for the motor cars. In the rainy season, the camel path was a miry mog, or bog, excuse me. If a man was walking to Calcutta on the muddy side of the road, another might approach him and say that he has an experience to share with him. You know, it walks a lot better over on the macadam side of the road. And so this gentleman, he gets out of the mug, the mud and the bog, And he comes over and he changes to the other side of the road. 
The man in the mud moves over to the paved road and cries out that his life has been changed. But I come along with my biblical desire for truth and ask two questions. Where were you going when you were in the mud? I was going to Calcutta. Okay. Well, when you changed over to the other side of the road, where then were you going? Well, I was going to Calcutta. You do not need your life changed. You need it exchanged. You need an absolutely new life. And this only comes from the new birth. Only then will you find yourself on a new road and traveling in a new direction. Are we going to dumb down the gospel to something less than that? I believe if there is a transformation of the heart, it will be immediately noticeable on the outside. Honestly, I really think that. Even though it may take many years of sanctification, many years, to really make the change at all to be there. But I think there needs to be a change. And if there isn't, then I think there's something wrong. And so let's really be careful with this whole thing of the new birth. And let's make sure it's real. Let's make sure we have the exchanged life. The second thing that I want to talk about, and you may say, what does this have to do with it? But that is of child training. I think we're in trouble. I think we're in trouble when we see parents who have children who don't listen on them. Two, three-year-olds that just, the parent tells them what to do and the child does exactly the opposite. Parent tells them what to do and they lay down on the floor and kick and scream. We've got a problem. We are setting that generation up to end up in the pig pen. Proverbs twenty nine seventeen: Correct thy son, he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Now, according to this verse, if a father corrects his son, the result is that the son will give rest and delight. Rest and delight to the father. If the son does not give him rest and delight, that means the father messed up somewhere. Well, you know, I want to be careful here because there's a lot of reasons why children turn out the way they do. A lot of influence and all that. But we do need to recognize that God did give us the equipment. He gave us the wisdom. He gave us the know-how. And it can be done. And so when I go through life and I see families and they got two or three children and it's just running them ragged and they're just, they're just, they're just, their life is just so upset because the children are running the place. And I, I feel sad and it makes me want to cry because I know that they're raising them to probably end up in the pig pen other than the sheer grace of God. First warning, don't buy into the teaching of the day. And that is, by spanking your children, you will damage their self-image. Let's get that one straight. That is not old school. Spanking your children and doing it right and being consistent is the proper way. And I'm afraid that Christendom Day is buying into the new age Proverbs 13.24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. A man who does not spank his son hates him. This does not mean that he's filled with emotional revulsion for his son. It means that the lack of discipline has a destructive impact on the future course of that son's life. A parent... A parent's refusal to discipline is therefore an act of hatred. Proverbs 23.13, withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. A child will be the best off emotionally if they have correction with love. A child will be the most secure if they have rules to abide by. All correction and all rules must be couched with loving relationship. And the more consistent a parent is, the more effective their child training will be. 
I think this is a big one. When we think of our hard, uh, our hard to come by decisions to leave the world behind, to leave the situations behind, to leave the life of sin. And we're starting out a new road. A lot of parents, you know, they hold that first child in their arms and they're touched right to the core. I have a responsibility. They look around and they say, I have nothing around me that's going to help me raise this child. So they pick up even to the to the destruction of family relationships and puts themselves somewhere where they can raise their children for the Lord. And then they're careless about child training. Their children grow up and they're rebellious and and they turn around and go right back to the mess that they came from that the parents work so hard to get out of. So sad. It's so sad. Why did David have a rebellious son? Then Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I'm going to be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, What hast thou done? Why hast thou done so? He also was a very goodly man. Probably wasn't for his good. And his mother bare him Absalom. So I'm saddened to see that even well-meaning parents do not require complete obedience. Too many times the parent is exasperated because the child, tra- child is running circles around them. It is not expecting too much that a two-year-old has required complete obedience immediately and cheerfully. A person can train a dog in two weeks. Obedience lessons. We should have our two-year-olds trained very well. A home with well-trained children should be a place where all are treated kindly and there is a spirit of peace. The spirits of the children and parents alike are clear and open and there's an overall happiness and contentment. A home like this, you will hear no threats, no raised voices to have to make the children obey, but rather an overall desire to please and follow the wishes of those who are in charge. What you're willing to invest in your children will largely determine the dividends that you will get in later years. So parents, be diligent, teach, pray much, take an interest in their lives as a friend, discipline properly, set clear lines and boundaries, and make sure there is accountability for any transgression. So that's number two. I haven't been around you that much. I don't know how well you're doing the child training here, but you see it so often. Really, really need to get serious parents. It was the time, there were times when, when our children were young and we just poured over all the teachings and all the books. I mean, it was the emphasis, it was the passion. And, uh, let's, uh, let's really do that. The third area, the third area I want to talk about is a, a unique area that uh, might make a few of you your, your, your bristle the hair on the back of your neck a little bit. But I think it's very true. In Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul speaking, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also propagating the faith. And so what it's saying here, Timothy, you go find some men, some faithful men, and you pour your lives into those faithful men that those faithful men are going to go and do exactly like I've done and like you've done. And just keep on propagating this faith. You go find faithful men and you do that. Let's read a couple more verses. If we think of of uh, of passing on the faith in this way. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. What for? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh, really? So, those that are ordained Their responsibility and their job is to just bring everybody together like this. 
And so then, you have all of these people, a whole church full of people who really want to be taught and trained and encouraged. And, and so the ministers are teaching, and then you have all these faithful men, and they go make more faithful men. It's amazing the way that works. But for some reason or other, we've been bred with independence. You know, oh, I'll come, and you, you preach, and I like to hear a good sermon, and, and then I go live my own life. It's done very much. But this idea of passing it on, you know, and we're going to read some more verses, which even gets uh, more practical. Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Wait a minute. Who are we following? Are we following the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, yeah. Whose faith follow? You mean, I'm being told... That those that are ordained, I need to sit back and I need to look at their faith. I need to follow it. I think we pretty much bought into the idea that we're not following men. Forget that whole thing. We're following the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we got? We got a bunch of independent people. Now, it doesn't say simply follow them. It says follow their faith. That becomes pretty sobering to those of us that are ordained. It says, considering the end of their conversation. And, and that doesn't mean, well, you look there and you watch their behavior. And if they're not quite doing what is right, that means there's an excuse not to follow. You know what that actually means? That actually means, um, consider the end of their conversation or the end of their walk in life. In other words, just go back and you see the, you see the Apostle Paul and you watch him through life. And you watch him live his life. And you watch him die at the end of his life. See, there's something beautiful about that. And then you go and you watch uh, the Apostle Peter and you watch his life. And you watch him and go through all of his life. And you watch him die and you say, there's something beautiful about that. That's the faith I want. And so then there's men in our history, uh, godly men, who we watched. Preachers of the faith that we honor, we respect. And we watch their life. And we observe their life and we watch them die. And we say, there's something beautiful about that. And there's something that should well up within us and say, whatever they have, I want. And that's really what it's saying here. So, you remember those that rule over you. They've been preaching the word to you. You follow their faith. Second Thessalonians 3, seven. Paul gets very, very bold. He says, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us. I don't expect that your preachers are going to say that. All right. You know how you, you know how we told you you're supposed to follow us. Follow us. But the apostle Paul did that. Now I don't think he was saying, I mean other places, and we'll read that, follow me as I follow Christ. But this whole thing of discipleship is something I think we've lost. This thing of looking at someone else and seeing their walk in life, and seeing their faith in God, and seeing the outworking of that faith, and saying, I'm going to come right alongside of them, I'm going to be a support, I'm going to match, my life is going to come right along, because they have the faith, and then together it's an army that can go forward. But we're too independent, we don't like that. Second Thessalonians 3, 9, Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. That gets really bold. That gets really bold. Philippians chapter 3 verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. And 1 Thessalonians 1 6. And be ye, excuse me, and ye became followers of us. And of the Lord. I like how he ties them together. That feels a little bit better. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Ghost. Just a couple of questions as we look at that. And the principle of, of following the faith of those that have preached the word of God. What kind of church would we have if everyone willingly followed the faith of their leaders? What kind of church would we have? We got the concept that 
it's kind of like a club. You know, we all come together. We all have something in common. And we get together because of that thing that's in common. But we have our independent lives. What would happen if parents would show their children their commitment to follow the to follow those that God has set over them. We have trouble sometimes getting our children to follow us. I would really hope and pray that, say, if I get to live 30 years from now or 40 years from now, that when we all come together as a family, that there would be something that would be common. Someone could say that the faith has been propagated. I would hope that. But I wonder sometimes if the reason we are not doing it is because we have an independent attitude when it comes to church life. I wonder sometimes. And is it asking too much? I mean, it's a clear scripture teaching that uh, consider those that are over you and preach the word of God. Follow their faith. Follow their faith. I think we're so scared of following man that we have convinced ourselves that individualism is okay. Because we're not following man. But we need to follow their faith as it is lived out in detail. And again, that's sobering for us as leaders whose faith follow can we be followed safely? It's a good question. Happened all down through the Bible. You look at Moses. Joshua served Moses. He was a man at Moses' right hand. You know, you could just see. Here goes Moses. And you hear a little bit about Joshua following along. Joshua. And when it came time for the next man to take over, he was right in sync with Moses. He was on the same page and God could just... Turn the mantle right over to Joshua and you see no glitch in the movement. It kept going the very same direction. Somehow, Joshua didn't do that. Joshua got to the end of his life and they, they're in Judges. First chapter, it says, as long as Joshua was alive, the people, but as soon as he went, fell foul on his face. Something wasn't propagated there. And then we have Elijah and that resulted in Elisha. And actually... I understand that Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I mean, they were prophets. They were together. He saw Elijah living uh, his life out. I'm sure he knew a lot about Elijah. And uh, he asked for a double portion of whatever he got. So, would it be okay to ask for a double portion of what your ministers got here? I want a double portion of that. And it says he did twice as many miracles as Elijah. That's recorded. Jesus had 12 disciples. He duplicated the faith in those 12 disciples. Those 12 disciples went out. After he died, those 12 disciples went out and they turned the world upside down. And they duplicated it time and time again. You know, the concept is there. I plant corn and I expect to get corn back. You ladies plant vegetables in your garden. You expect to get the same vegetable from the seed. We should be propagating the faith. Uh, parents, we should be able to pass it right along to our children. It is possible. And that our children walk in the faith. And it should work that way in the church. I know it gets a little hard, and I'm going to say something really difficult. And that is, if you don't like your preachers, and if you say, I'm not going to follow them, then go find someone you can follow. Just do it. Because it would be better for you and it would be better for everyone else. Propagating the faith. And so, challenge comes to me. Would I, am I willing? And it comes to me too. I'm not just out there on my own, but I'm looking at other men. Those that are in the ministry with me. Am I going to follow their faith? Am I willing to do that? Or am I not? I've seen parents who raise children that have such a respect for their parents, they could be said they are following the faith of their parents. 
I love my parents. They did the right thing. I am going to follow that faith. And so, as we think of passing on the faith, let's make sure we have clear conversions. Let's not be satisfied with something less than clear conversions. And let's not be scared to challenge a conversion if it's not clear. One of the places it starts, if we're going to propagate the faith, is with child training. And I think uh, we have to be careful, some of us who, our children are a little older, we can lose the burden of child training. And I think we need to keep that alive among our people so that the young folks who have little babies in their lap that they can be encouraged and blessed and find their way through all of that. And then third, this thing of following the faith of our leaders. I think it's a good thing. And if we could all just just come together like that as they teach and preach, we're bringing it together, it becomes a unity. The body starts edifying itself. Just it it's it just it just works, you know. It it it's like centrifugal force, you know. Not centrifugal force that blows out. What is that? Something that just keeps on going. Perpetual motion. The congregation becomes a perpetual motion. It edifies itself in love. It just keeps going like this. But we're so scared of each other, and we so love our individualism, and uh, we're not going to follow man and all of those things. And it's a real thing. I just remember many years ago. You remember, uh, you know, Danny Keniston, and he was a charity and. I don't know if we were still going there or not, but at one point, Denny had took a sabbatical. And uh, one, one of the families came to me and says, people are leaving since Denny uh, stepped back. I said, praise God. If they were there just for him, then they better leave. We're not talking about that. Whose faith follows, not about that. We're not following some charismatic man who has good charisma. There's plenty of that. We know that the reason President Obama got into office was because two things. He had good looks and he could make a good speech. That's well known. That's why he got in. It wasn't because he had a good idea how to run the country. He got in because he was good looking and because he could make a good speech. And the next one that comes along will be able to do the same. Men are just following men for admiration, for what managed to get. We're not talking about that. We're saying, I want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are men that God has set before us who are walking that thing out. They're faith. They're rooted. They're grounded in Christ Jesus. I'm going to follow them. That's what we're talking about. I pray that there would be no, no young person here, and for that matter, older person, who is contemplating going back out there into that pig pen, that world out there. It's not pretty. It's not fun. I could stand here all morning and tell you of sad stories that I know about, run into, have faced. It, it's just, it's horrible. And it's so sad. And I guess my plea today is, if you're flirting, if you're at all flirting with that thing, step way back from the edge. Way back from the edge. Just this week, there was a young man, 17 years old, uh, in the state of New York, who uh, and his friends, they were going to see some waterfalls. I don't even, I don't get the story altogether straight. Anyhow, they wanted to climb down this one ledge down to the bottom to where the water was. And uh, so they're climbing down and he lost his footing and he fell. I don't know how far he fell. I'm not sure. Last time, I guess he's still alive, but been in a coma. They tried to bring him out of coma a few times, but they can't. And so, we don't know if they'll live. Let's just get back from the edge. Let's not flirt with it, because there's not many come out alive when they fall. So, Let's pray together, Heavenly Father, this morning again. I just want to thank you for this congregation and pray for them that for whatever reason, you put this message on my heart that somehow it can be uh, worked out in each one of our lives and be a blessing. Father, I pray that somehow you would teach us and show us how to propagate the faith. Oh, it's such a shame. Oh, we see families who've left that mud, that mire, that mess out there. They've claimed the, 
name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They live a godly life and then something happens and they all go back out into that mud and mire. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that if there's anyone here that is flirting around the edges of the world, the sin, the appetites of the flesh, that uh, there would be repentance and there would be a moving away because the fall is so, so, um, it's so easy and the result is so devastating. So bless this congregation. Bless the leaders. Bless each one. You might be glorified and honored, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.